0: I want you to know this in Isaiah, that really chapter 2, uh, 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, is one unit. It, it, it's one whole teaching. And, and, and the way it's laid out is Isaiah is going to give us a picture of this coming kingdom, th- this, this heavenly Jerusalem. And it, it's a city. And, and then you see in chapters 2 and 3, we kind of we revert back to the, the reality of the city of Jerusalem. So this is a city to come. This is a city that's real and here and now. And then chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, we go back and have another shot, another picture of that city to come. So I want you to see chapter 2, the beginning, and chapter 4 is kind of like these snow-capped peaks that we're heading for that should be the object of our hope. It's where we anchor our hope. And then you see in chapter 2 and 3, the city of Jerusalem. This is the city to come. This is the city that's here now. And uh, that's how we're going to read this, and I'm going to try to pull it together at the end. So it, let, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 2, 1. And, and let's look at this vision in which God is asking for us, offering to us, to place our hope for that day. He says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, now let let me just draw your mind back to last week because it's important. Chapter 1 really sets kind of an introduction for the whole thing. Uh, We we learned last week that in chapter 1, God indicted his people for their rebellion. Remember what he did. He likened them to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a terrible thing. I mean, for God to liken his chosen elect people to Sodom and Gomorrah says much. But he likens them because of their spiritual hypocrisy. He likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah for their idolatry and their ingratitude. Here, Israel was elect among all the nations. God chose them so as to use them as a light to the nation. So God is always pursuing people. God has always been pursuing people, and he chose Israel to be the light to shine forth his glory. Well, instead of reflecting the glory to the world, they were reflecting the world to the world because they adopted the principles of the world leaving the world in darkness, failing miserably at the very task that God called them to do. And here's the rebuke that God gives to this nation. In 21 of chapter 1, he says, how the faithful city, that's what they were, that's what he called them to be, because that's the true Israelite, the one who lives by faith before Yahweh. He says, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, now murders. Your princes are rebels. Everyone loves a bribe, and you do not bring justice to the fatherless. He's accusing them, indicting them. Now what Isaiah's is going to do in 2 and 3 is he's going to keep speaking. So when you read, when you go home today and you, you consider the words of the sermon, you go back to the text and you study it, you're going to see both in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God keeps weaving these indictments of the nation. And he's going to speak about their idolatry, their love, their affluence, Fueled idolatry. They had so much. They were so full, and yet they were so empty. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. He says, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So he's accusing them of taking the gifts of God and just making them gods to whom they would give their worship. But he goes on in chapter 3 about their haughtiness and their pride and their spiritual apostasy. So he's really laying a charge against the people of God. Now, as you continue reading, you will see, interspersed with these indictments, you see the promises of judgment coming, that God's going to judge the people for their sin. You see it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem And from Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty men, the soldier, the judge, and the prophet, the diviner, and the elder. So God is bringing judgment by taking away from their fullness He took their government away, leaving them in political anarchy. He took took their affluence away, leaving them in financial chaos. He took their social structures away, leaving them in social anarchy. He is taking away those things in which they had put their trust and hope. And at the end of 2, he just sums it up. He says this. He says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop. Trusting in man. Stop trusting in the things of men. It's all temporal. So God lays the city out in ruins. He removes from them like pulling the posts out of a foundation and the house comes down. God brought judgment on them for their disobedience, their rebellion. Now, let me just stop for a minute because that's the city of man. That's the city of ruin. That's a picture of our world. The city of man apart from God. Now, does this judgment leave you kind of miffed, or do you feel like it's over the top? Do you think it's excessive? I mean, do do you sometimes wish God maybe was a little more forgiving, or perhaps you feel like, hey, let's do something a little more proportional, God? I mean, sometimes when you read Isaiah, particularly, but you read the books of the Old Testament, don't you feel sometimes as if God almost looks like a bit of an ogre? I I, I mean, it, it seems as if his violent reaction to sin kind of seems over the top. It's kind of like the evangelist saying, God, God, I mean, if we want people to believe in you, you've got to change your behavior a little bit. I mean, that's the way we feel sometimes about the nature of God judging sin as he does. But I want to have you consider two things. I think we struggle with God's judgment, the ruination that he brought to this nation, because we don't understand the absolute perfection of his character. His holiness. You know, when we speak about God's glory, a glory is kind of a it's a it's a word that we use a lot here, and I think sometimes we we fail to understand what it means. The actual Hebrew word just means heavy. That God is heavy laden with beautiful perfections, that all of his attributes are without air. So if you can see this heavy tree, this tree with heavy laden fruit on it, and the branches are just bending down, God is perfect in every way. And and I think what happens is when we have no divine standard for holiness and righteousness and perfection, then our sins of idolatry and ingratitude don't seem like that big a deal. And God seems to be kind of heavy-handed. But our sins held against his beauty and perfection and glory, all of a sudden we begin to understand judgment seems more right. It seems more appropriate. Now, we're going to look at judgment a little more, or the holiness of God, I should say, a little more next week but let me try to make this uh, let me try to give you an analogy and maybe this will strike with you you know if, if there are two bad men and one bad man brings about a crime on another bad man well, we want justice we we don't want crimes to be unpunished that's the way we are god's made us in his image we want justice to be, justice to be served but but we don't have the same visceral reaction in this situation versus this one there's a bad man And he takes advantage and abuses an innocent, pure child. There's something more visceral that comes out in you, like that's got to be stopped. Why? Because the child is innocent. The child's pure. And the child is is blameless in this situation. So if you kind of take that idea of innocence and put it to God in terms of his holiness, you begin to see it's a greater sin than we actually think to just be ungrateful. You know, we say it to kids, you're not very grateful, That's, that's inappropriate. You ought to be more thankful for what you have. But when we are ungrateful to the creator of the universe who's given us life and breath and everything, then it begins to pick up a little more visceral reaction. Judgment needs to fall. So that's the first thing I'd have you think about. We struggle with God's judgment because we don't understand his holiness. But secondly, I would say that I think we struggle with God's judgment because we don't understand the intention of his judgment. We often look at God's judgment. It seems capricious. It seems a little haphazard. It seems over the top. Is he just exacting a pound of flesh? We don't see that God's judgment upon the nation is to not only display his holiness, but it's also to bring us to our senses. It's actually merciful to wake us up to the reality of who God is and who, he, and who we are. So there's a purpose to God's judgment it has an end goal both of his glory and ultimately our redemption so when we see the judgment of God we don't want to just shy away as if God's just kind of been woken up and he's now in a bad mood God is holy and he is purpose-filled in his judgment of the nations the question we have to ask is not holding God in contempt over his justice I think the perp- the question we have to ask is this shouldn't we be judged I mean, are we any better than this group here? When you read through chapter 1, 2, and 3, are you any different? Do you deserve any, di- any different treatment? I mean, do we not stand somewhat convicted? When, when I read about us being full of gold and silver, we have no end of treasure, uh, full of horses, we've got no end of chariots, th- that we're full of idols that we've made. I mean, when you think about our haughtiness and our pride, what, last week we talked about the spiritual hypocrisy, And how our motivations are mixed and we're just going to give God some worship and he ought to be happy with us? I mean, has that not crossed your soul a time or two? So shouldn't we stand in the same line of judgment and why aren't we? This is a huge difference between the man of the world and the man of the Bible. See, the man of the world doesn't understand God's judgment. He he doesn't recognize that he's a sinner. He justifies what he does. He excuses himself if he, he writes his own law and then he holds himself to the changing law that he's just written. It's no problem. I mean, you tell a, a, a non-Christian that, that God has the right to judgment. Oh, I didn't anything wrong. I mean, what have I done? I'm a good citizen. I'm faithful to my wife. I mean, they drag out all the things they've done in the last year and hold it right. In. This is why I'm innocent. They do it all the time. But but here's the Christian is different. The Christian actually understands he should be judged. This is this is the note of the Christian. The evidence of the Christian is he knows he ought to be judged. He knows that he's guilty of Idolatry? Spiritual hypocrisy? The Christian understands it. The Christian actually is just thankful for the mercy of God. The Christian understands that while he should be judged, there is that phrase, but God. But God who is rich in mercy. The Christian understands that God in mercy has given a son Jesus, the Messiah, to bear the wrath of God's righteous judgment. And so the Christian is overwhelmed with both humility and joy. Humility, because we didn't do anything, we're no different than the people of whom we're reading. But we've been spared by grace. And this is the picture of grace. It's unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to be spared. He just chose to spare us for his own purposes and his own glory all to the praise of his glorious grace. So, so, I mean, it leaves us humbled, and yet at the same time it leaves us joy-filled because he has provided one for us. So, so when you look at the city of ruins, when you look at the city of man, as, as Augustine would call it, you see the place in ruins. We're, we're just centered on ourselves. We're promoting ourselves. We live in contempt of God. That's the city of man. But by his grace, he has drawn some out. And that's the difference between the man of the world and the man of God. So, so that's the picture that he first gives us in chapter 1. And then sprinkled through 2 and 3, you're going to see God bringing judgment on the city of man. Okay, now in chapter 2, it's going to be contrasted. It's out of the darkness of what I've just said. It's out of that darkness that you see the city of God. You see the New Jerusalem. Remember, it's the second city now, the New Jerusalem. So we've talked about the city of man. Now let's talk about the city of God. And I want to hold it in contrast. Look with me at verse 2. Isaiah writes, he's giving us this vision. He's saying, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, look. Isaiah speaks about this as a city to come. We see that because of the temporal modifier he gives us. In the latter days, he says. Now, what does this mean? Well, the Hebrew word actually just means in the afterward of the days. Now, some want to see this as a millennial age to come. It's a good question. I don't know. Um, well, I kind of do know. I don't want to go there. Uh, but what I want to say is that actually the word means in the last days of the days. So it's in the end of time. Let's just put it there. It is not now. We are in the last days. We know that because um, we know it from the New Testament, Hebrews, and in the last days he has spoken to us in his son. Uh, John, in 1 John 4, even says we're in the last hour. Uh, so we're in the latter days, but this is the last part of the latter days that this is going to come. But look what's going to happen. He says this, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up and shall be lifted up above the hills, and, and all the nations will flow to it. Now, let's just stop there for a minute with the, this mountain being established and lifted up. What does this mean? Are we to understand this literally? That, that, that somehow there's going to be a topographical shift, and, and this mountain is going to rise higher than all the other mountains? Or is he speaking about the restoration of, of Jerusalem? Because remember now, following Isaiah, the people are carted off to Babylon. He does restore them. Is that what he's talking about? Well, I don't think physical realities can do justice to the spiritual truths that are being taught here. So when it says that this mountain is lifted up, I think we're to understand that there's going to be a day where God's glory is preeminent over all things. That that God, that the worship of God and that the glory of God will stand above all the gods and all the nations. Now, why do I say this? Well, remember, any mountain normally in this time, this culture, the mountains were seen as a place where the gods would meet earth. It's where heaven and earth touch, is the mountains. And so that's where your, your pagan worship and your pagan service would take place, in the mountains. And so when it says that, that the Lord's mountain is lifted up, that means that God now is reigning supreme over all the gods, over all the nations. So for us in our tolerant, loving culture, where we really uphold tolerance at the exclusion oftentimes of truth, There is an exclusivity of God and worship of Yahweh that is being proposed here, that in these last days there will be no competition for God. There will be no distractions. Idolatry will not provide a problem. It will not even be there. But not just the preeminence of God's worship will be in these last days, but look with me in verse 3. He says that the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Part of this new city of Jerusalem, the city of God, is going to be that the nations stream to it, that all the peoples come to it. They're not not forced to, they're not politically motivated to, they're confident, they're expectant, they want to go and learn of God. All the nations do. They want to go and learn. They don't want to just learn about God. They want to live for God. In other words, the words out of God's mouth is going to instruct them, and they're going to live in light of the word. You know That is the biblical idea of knowledge. Knowledge is not the facts that you have, but knowledge is really seeing how you live. So if I were to say, here's what I know, you would just look at my life. You wouldn't let me spout off a bunch of facts that I may have down. That doesn't display a biblical view of knowledge. It's how I live. And so these nations are going to come. And what it means here is there is no ethnic distinctions any longer. There is no nationalistic pride in this kingdom. In this city, those are all blurred. They're all blurred. It doesn't matter. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no slave. There's no free. We're all streaming to God to learn. So there's going to be deep and passionate worship. Great learning and living for God. But then thirdly, you see in verse 4, and this is a very popular verse, that there's going to be a peace. He says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So what he's saying here, in this age, in this time, in the last part of the last days, there will be a glorious peace where even the implements of war are being redesigned to promote creation, to promote God not just that, he says that nation will not lift up sword against nation. In fact, we're not even going to learn war anymore. All the military academies, all the military war colleges, they will no longer be needed. There will be a peace. Now, when I speak about a peace, I'm not talking about an absence of conflict. I'm not saying if we can somehow secure the chemical weapons of Syria or stop nuclear proliferation, if that's going to somehow bring about a peace. That's not what we're speaking about here. It's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable peace. You know, if you think about our world, we've never known peace. Men love war. We do. We love war. The pride, the self aggrandizement the advancing of my purposes over yours. We love war. Just in our own century alone. World War II, it was called what? The war to end all wars. There was 37.5 million men, women, died. League of Nations was formed, so we'd never do the same thing again. That we would never bring such tragedy and travesty upon humankind. We'd never do it. Let's assure ourselves never to do it. Within 30 years, World War II, 79 million people died. We love war. But there will be no war here. There will be a peace that is profound. There will not just be the armaments being redesigned, but even the war we have relationally within our families, with our marriages, the struggles we have in life, the, the, just, the, just the incongruent nature of some of our relationships. We just can't seem to work with certain people. All of that will be changed because we'll be walking in the light of the Lord. Now, what most excites you when I speak about these things? Is it the is it the is it the pure worship of God alone that excites you, that no longer will you have to fight through the idolatries that you're manufacturing that distract you from God, or 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 is it the is it the is it the learning of God? You know our minds don't work like they ought. Our minds sometimes we can't get our minds around concepts of God, and we want to know more of God, but we can't. Can you imagine? It will be like drinking freely from a fountain, and there is no end to what you can drink. Won't that be beautiful? I mean, won't that be amazing to see God and to begin to know God in ways without all the distractiveness? Or how about the peace, the peace that we will have? I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, there will be no more conflict. I hate conflict. I, I, we, we have to deal with it with each other. I don't like it. I mean, harmony and wholeness, that, that Hebrew word shalom, that peace, it has the it has the understanding of a soundness to it, that it's solid, it's good, it's right. There's harmony. I think we need to spend some time when you when you look and live in the city of man. We have to spend time in thinking about and dwelling and rooting our hope in the city of God. When I was in Austria and Carol and I were serving over there, we lived in a town called Furt, and Furt was a small town and it was kind of in a valley, and it was surrounded by these mountains. They call them the Four Alpen. The Four Alpen, they were before the Alps. They were smaller, maybe 1,000 meters high, but they were, they were tall enough when you're living right beneath them. And uh, I would take a motorcycle up to the top, and I would just sit there and just gain a perspective. It, it helped me. Sometimes you get up higher, things get smaller, and you begin to realize your place in all of God's creation. And it begins to bring perspective. I would encourage you to do that that if you're going to anchor your hope in this kingdom to come that God is offering to us, then, then, then you need to think about it. I, I mean, the struggle that we have living for the day is because we don't think about the day, the day, or oftentimes we give little thought to it, or we only think about it at funerals. You know, it's to occupy the mind of the believer now. We're pilgrims now. So, so that's the city of man, the city of ruin, and the city of God. Okay, so it begs the question then: How do we get from one to the other? How do we get from the city of God that you're going to see in chapters one, two, and three, and how do we oh, city of man? And how do we get to the city of God? This is where I'd like you to read with me. Um, go to chapter four, if you will. I'm just going to read um, a couple verses um, out of this chapter four in Isaiah, because this is the other snow capped peak. This is the second. Picture we have of this coming kingdom of these last days. He says, "In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth, I'm jumping the verse four. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning." Okay, so Isaiah is saying there is a branch of the Lord. There's one that's coming out of the Lord that will be beautiful and glorious and that will cleanse, that will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem. How God moves from the city of ruin to the city of God is going to be through a Messiah, the branch of the Lord. A Messiah will come out of God, a servant of God, who will bring about a redemption, a restoration a cleansing of the filth of the city of ruins. Now, folks, this branch of the Lord, this Messiah, of course, Jesus in his ministry, he takes that upon himself. In other words, it's through the establishment of a kingdom. So when you go to the New Testament and you go into Mark chapter 1, Jesus stands there and says, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, the Messiah, this branch of the Lord, this servant, was to do two things. He was to inaugurate the kingdom, And he was to call men and women into it. So how do we move from the city of ruin to the city of God? Well, the Messiah comes and he does two things. He inaugurates the kingdom, which is what he does in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the Messiah comes and inaugurates the kingdom, and he does this through his life and his death and his resurrection. So the Messiah will bear the sins of men and women, thus washing them, removing the filth, He's going to be raised, accepted for their justification. So he's going to inaugurate a kingdom, and now he's going to begin calling people into it. So Jesus didn't just inaugurate it, but he called people into it. That Jesus, in his ministry, was calling what? The nations. But notice how he starts. You know, The first picture we see Jesus after the birth narrative is when he's 12 years old. And what is he doing when he's 12 years old? He's in the temple teaching the teachers of Israel. It's interesting. It's not, a, it's not a little neat snapshot of Jesus' childhood that you're supposed to just of, oh, that's kind of nice looking to be studying the Bible. No, no, no. Isaiah promised. Isaiah promised that he, referencing here now, I believe, Christ, that he will teach us his ways. So the first thing Jesus does as a 12-year-old is he teaches the teachers the ways of God, and he does it in Jerusalem. So Jesus is showing us, That he's the one, he's the Messiah, he's going to teach his people. But he doesn't just teach Israel, he teaches all the nations. In fact, at the very beginning of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, here's what we read He grounds his ministry in the words of Isaiah chapter 9, and he says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations, same word, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What I want you to see is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come, and now he's representing all of Israel. All of Israel failed to display and to declare the glory of God. He's now doing it. He has inaugurated and He's calling people into the kingdom. And that's what Isaiah is whetting their appetite for. They're about to be carted off into exile. And he's saying, a day's coming. Here is the glorious Jerusalem. It's going to be brought about by the Messiah. Anchor your hope in that. That's the call for us, to anchor our hope in this Messiah. Now notice, back to Isaiah chapter 2, the passage we're studying. So I've tried to, for you, I've tried to hold up the city of ruin. This is where we are. The city of God, it's where we're going. A Messiah comes, and he begins calling people into a kingdom. I would call that just as a play on Dickens, as in a play on Augustine. It's really a tale of three cities. There's the city of ruin. There's the city of God. But now Christ is calling us, the Messiah, to a city of hope. That is the gathered community of faith. That is the church. So the church now exists in the city of ruin until God brings about the completion of the city of hope. Jesus inaugurated, he fulfilled Isaiah partially, not completely. So now we are the ones who are in the city of hope, in the city of ruin, waiting for the city of God. That is the church. Now, notice what Isaiah gives as his one word of instruction here. He says in verse 5 in chapter 2, he says, O house of Jacob, the people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the call. Now, again, you see the judgment of God, but you see the severe mercy of God in the Messiah, not just that, but in the invitation again. Just last week, he said, come, let us reason together. And now we're saying, come, let us walk. In the light of the Lord. This isn't just for the Christian here. I think this word for come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, I think that's an invitation to the people of the city of ruin, the non Christian. I think it's an invitation to come to God. I think for those of us here, for the non Christian here, it's still an invitation because this kingdom hasn't been completed. It, it, it's an invitation to you, those of you who feel burdened by your idolatries you see that you're swamped in in hooking up your wagon of hope on all kinds of passing fancies and temporal issues it, it's for those of you who are burdened with the guilt of your sin that you do see the you do see the self-idolatry you see the struggle with sin that you have you're burdened you're apart from god you know the the, the, the incredible mercy of god is seen in that he appeals to those in the city of ruin to come and leave and join the city of hope that is, that is to believe by faith, to repent of your sins and to root your faith in Christ. The message of the Bible is God seeking ruined people so as to restore them. You see him through the Gospels. I mean, think with me for just a minute. The prodigal son, there he is among the pigs, as we talked about last week. And, and he comes to his senses and he's invited back into the father's house. I, I think about the prostitute in Luke 7. She has a life of harlotry, and yet she hears the message of the gospel, and, and she weeps before the feet of Christ, placing her faith in him, and she's delivered, she's cleansed. I think about the, the thief on the cross, that, that, he, that he just turns to Jesus and says, remember me, and he's invited into this kingdom. God brings us in the city of ruin to a point of desperation. Then he restores us. I mean, this is the way of God. Nobody walks into the kingdom with the things that they've done as if God's going to now accept them because of who they are. He brings all of us to a point of desperation. And so if there are those of you here today that are at that point, you are desperate over your own sin, you are concerned over your own life, you don't have a hope, then then please, after the service, come forward and speak with one of us. It's the mercy of God. I, I even think about the tax collector and the Pharisee that parable that jesus gives in luke 15 you know the pharisee goes in the temple and he's confident in himself he says lord thank you i'm not like all these other adulterers and tax collectors I'm not like that guy over there I'm, I've, I've got tithes, all that, all that i have and i i do all these good things and he's just confident in who he is and what he's done but then you have the tax collector in the back of the temple and he's terrified of god he's just beating his breast have mercy on me have mercy on me and jesus says he went home forgiven why he was desperate he was desperate and he knew his sin. He knew his need and so he appealed to God and God forgave him and brought him into the kingdom. That's how we move into the city of hope and then the city of God. So, so that's for the non-Christian. But for the Christian here, what does it mean for you to come? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me just give you a few application points for the Christian here to, to consider these things. First, I think what it means is if you are a Christian, you're living in the city of hope, you're living in the church, waiting for the city of God, and so you ought to be marked, your life ought to be marked by hope. Naturally, if you're in the city of hope, you ought to be marked by hope. Now, the citizen of the world or the citizen of this city of ruin, their hope is going to be in present circumstances or the near-term future or their hope's going to be in education or science or technology or it's going to be in the government. It's going to be rooted in something. But the Christian's hope is rooted in Christ the Messiah. In other words, we are, our hope is rooted in a kingdom to come, in a city whose foundations are from old. See, that's the nature of predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy, like we're reading here in chapter 2, it isn't to satisfy your curiosity about how it all shakes out in the end. He's telling us what's to come so that you have hope, and you have consolation, and you have comfort. He's telling us these things so that we might say, it's going to be okay in this life. Whatever comes to me, I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to walk with hope because my God, Will care for me. Neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor things to come, neither life nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have hope. We have hope because we have a Messiah, and this Messiah has redeemed us. And so we ought to live with hope. In fact, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He preached this on a Sunday evening, and here's how he encouraged his, his church. He said, it is to such an exploit of climbing that I invite you this evening. May the Spirit of God assist us to leave the mists of fear and the fevers of anxiety and all the ills which gather in this valley of earth and to ascend the mountains of anticipated joy and blessedness. May God, the Holy Spirit, cut the cords that keep us here below and assist us to mount. We sit too often like chained eagles fastened to a rock. We don't have a hope because we're not thinking about all that God has. That is reality, friends. That is reality. Not the hopes that you may have or or the turn of events that you're looking for in another three weeks or the change in jobs in two months. That can be illusion. have no idea where that's coming. This is reality. That's where your hope's anchored. But secondly, that the church or the people of the city of hope, we have a deep love for the nations. We have a deep love for the nations. The, The city of man is marked by nationalism and ethnocentrism that my ethnicity or my nationality is where I find my identity. Not for the person of the City of Hope. The Christian says, no, we have a love for the nations. We have a love for the international community. The church will always go awry when it associates itself with national endeavors. When God and country are wed, you have problems. Look at Germany. It it is a problem when God and country are wed. God is beyond countries. You just read it. All the nations are streaming to him. That that we have a zeal. This text would give us a great encouragement, obviously for missional endeavor, not just overseas, but around. By God's grace, the countries are brought to America. This is a clear text to encourage missions, missions here and abroad. But it's also a clear text that we have a love for the nations this opposes racism in all of its forms there is to be no racism because god has made the races and they're all streaming towards him and this is this is a complete this completely opposes nationalism fascism so i don't mean to say that while citizens of the united states we don't walk out our citizenry well we do render to caesar the things that are caesar's jesus says render to God the things that are God's. And God is a missional God. He is on mission, drawing people out of the city of ruin to the city of hope, bringing them to a city of God. So we love the nations. Do we love the nations? Do you realize that in a recent survey that non-Christians were polled, if they knew Christians, one in five uh, who associated themselves as a non-Christian... One out of five say they know a Christian. Now that means we're just holing up somewhere. That means that we're not loving the nations. We're not loving the neighbors. We're not getting out that we ought to have non-Christian friends. We ought to have friends that will see us as we are. Okay, the third mark of the city of hope or the Christian is going to be uh, that we are humble. Now, again, the world, look at the citizenry of the world. They are arrogant. They're proud. They want to tell you their accomplishments. People come up and tell you who they are, what they've done, how great they're doing. It's, it's, we're all on these self-promotional tours. That's the city of ruin. But the city of God, we are humbled. Why are we humbled? Because we realize we did nothing to be saved. I mean, God has drawn us into the city of hope. He's given us a Redeemer. He's opened our eyes to our sin. He's led us to love the Redeemer. And that is all by grace. It's all out of his divine favor. If anyone here thinks that they have somehow intellectually or philosophically wrangled their way to see it in the right way and come to faith, you are deeply mistaken. All are saved by grace. Paul says clearly we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. So we are to be a humble people marked by humility. Humility in terms of of the way we relate to one another, the way we appeal to God, our dependency when we come to God. God leads us out of this sense of ruin into restoration, but he does it all by his grace so that no man may boast. No one will boast before God. We will all just worship him and thank him for how he has delivered us. But then fourthly, the fourth mark of the person in the city of hope, the people that we should be are really marked by obedience. Now, let me try to explain this a little bit. I'm talking about that the, that the worldly man, the citizen of the world, the citizen of the city of ruin, he is going to live life to the fullest. He's going to live life according to the law as he establishes it. He may take the law, but then he gets to justify or change it if his situations change. You hear it all the time. Just the excuse and the blame shifting. He gets to do that. We don't do that. Our lives are marked by this faith-fueled obedience. Obedience to the words of the Messiah. That's, that's our obedience, that our lives are to be a display of our Redeemer, our Messiah. Now, l- let me bring you back to the Old Testament. Uh, I don't have to bring you back there because I think we're already there. <laughs> yeah, I got a little spun around there for a minute. So, So... Um, what was I saying? So, our lives would be marked by faith. And here's why Israel was elect from among the nations, not because they had more going for them. They were elect to be chosen by God to display God's glory to the world. They were to live in the light of God's word, and they were to reveal God to the nations. They didn't do it. Jesus came, and that's why he said to do the the word of God is is food for him. It's it's his bread to eat. You know, the temptation that Satan brought to him, it it kept questioning him and, and trying to tempt him, and Jesus kept bringing the word to bear to Satan. He's living according to the world. Jesus is the perfect Israelite living by the word of God, displaying God's glory. We now as the church are new Israel. We are the ones now living by faith according to the word of God that when people see us, they're going to see the character of God. This is called a prophetic presence. Your presence in the life of unbelievers and others is to be prophesying to them about the nature of the God that you serve. And so we are marked by obedience, not a a, a white-knuckled Clench fist obedience, but an obedience driven out of love for the one who died for us, and an obedience driven out of hope for the future that we have. So it's tremendous. The church could be this glorious beacon of Christ to the world, as we're marked by hope, as we're marked by love for the nations, as we're marked by a deep humility, and sadly, folks, you and I have all had the experience where the church can often be the most pompous, self-righteous individuals. God have mercy on us. We are to be humble before him, humble because of all that he is. It's his mountain that's lifted up. It's not our mountain. It's not our ministry. It's not what we've done. I love that. You can water and you can plan, but God gives the increase. And then, and then marked by a faith-filled obedience. N- not an obedience that promotes self because I'm so obedient to God. And, and, and not an obedience of, look at how well I'm doing. It's an obedience that's fueled by the faith that we have in the Messiah. I'm resting in his obedience to be saved. But my resting in his obedience to be saved is going to, by nature, promote obedience within me. So let's take a few minutes. And uh, ask God for grace. So this is a time in our service where we can respond to God's word. Again, I said this a few weeks ago. We can do this incorrectly. We can just pray for ourselves. But we're a community of faith gathered here. So let us pray in a corporate sense, respecting the words that we've just heard. That may be a word of thanksgiving. It may be a word of petition. God have mercy on us. It may be a, a declaration of gratitude to God. But let's give it a few minutes. And then uh, David's going to close us in prayer. Let me start, and then I will let you pray. And pray loudly and and pray briefly so others may pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this branch, in this Savior, in this Messiah who has taken upon himself our sins. Father, um, we humble ourselves before you and express to you our deep and our passionate love for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.